Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm talking with Robin Metcalf about her new book, Food Roots, Growing Bananas in Iceland and Other Tales from the Logistics of Eating. Robin Metcalf, a food historian and food futurist, is a lecturer and research scholar at the University of Texas at Austin and director of Food and City. Stay tuned after the interview for more information about the show. Robin Metcalf, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you for the opportunity. This is great. Your book, Food Roots, Growing Bananas in Iceland and Other Tales from the Logistics of Eating, begins with a personal story about your time as the owner of a small farm in Maine. Why did you start there? Well, I started the book there because it was um, really the beginning point for the questions that um, that really compelled me to write this book. Yeah. You know, it was 10 years of working on a small farm in Maine, uh, sort of before, if, you know, before local became a thing, before there was even a language around sustainability. And I was, I was out there sort of on my own, and the farm was on its own to forge a new conversation about where our food comes from. And, and, and uh, in particular, we were focusing on agricultural biodiversity. In the process of all of this, I came across things that seemed to me very paradoxical. Like, why, why does someone buy food from a source 3,000 miles away when it's down the road? There were a lot of things that were just surprising to us as we were going down this pathway of starting a new um, project in a field we really had no experience in. So it was really the questions that came up along the way about why some of the the work of farming was so difficult that gave me sort of the grounding for book. So it came out of real experience um, and uh, it gave me a sense of where those friction points were, you know, why, why people paid what they paid for food, for example, why they got it from where they got it from. So it, it's the, it was those questions that compelled me to write the book. If we think about the logistics of food, or it, it set up the old term of value chain, everything from when the food is either, whether it's uh, animals, whether they've been slaughtered on, uh, after their ranching, or actually the, the vegetables that have been pulled out of the ground, from trucking to processing to packaging to the whole nine yards, it seems that you give the reader four keys to think about when evaluating that value chain. Could you tell us what those four points are, and could you give us a brief description of them? Sure, happy to, but... Also, keep in mind, I'm a food historian. I'm a historian. I'm not a supply chain um, expert. And, um, you know, in some ways, by not being an expert, it, it prepares one for being in their own naivety, um, uh, open to exploring a, a subject that is really complicated. And supply chains are really much more complicated than you think they are on the surface of them. And, um, and, uh, so in, in digging up sort of how it works, I came across some interesting sort of themes that, that ended up being the requirements that I think you're referring to. Um, you know, I traveled all over the world interviewing people uh, that create very simple um, items that were uh, native to their own cultures. So I went to Japan and spoke with an individual that makes rice balls on a giri, very, very common food there, and very simple. Um, I looked at peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and a slice of pizza in the United States, 
um, fish and chips in the UK, um, a ham and cheese sandwich in France, and marched back through the supply chain for all of the ingredients that made up these relatively simple, on the surface anyway, items of food. Um, and that's how I came across what I thought were really the four main things I found in common with all of these dishes in various cultures. And that really was that a supply chain had to be reliable. It has to be adaptable. It had to have embedded in it networks of trust. And they all relied on some form of technology, not necessarily the zippiest technology, but there was technology that enabled these supply chains to work. By the way, the whole idea of supply chains and logistics, I mean, try to find someone who gets really excited about these words. There's, you know, it's, there's nothing like entering a room and saying, boy, you know, food logistics, is that ever cool? You know, everyone's <laughs> averts their eyes and, you know, wants to know about the small farmer who's just discovered a new way of, you know, making heritage carrots or growing heritage carrots. The, the whole subject is off-putting. To people on the surface of it. So finding a way to talk about this has been a challenge every step of the way. Now, I can go through why all four of these are interesting. Um, very briefly, the, the reliability is really key. Um, reliability comes into place because, you know, we want consistency in our supply, food supply. Like you, when you buy a bag of oranges, you really want all those oranges to sort of be relatively the same size and the same flavor for the price that's advertised. Uh, so supply chains have to deliver things that are sort of reliably the same. And it's really related to pricing. It's your expectation, expectations. And the system needs to handle um sort of things on a reliable basis. Things need to show up on the shipping dock at regular times. Um, you need to have a certain number of items in every box. So although the supply chain is becoming more forgiving now because customers want, you know, odd shapes and unique things, it really functions best when it's when there's reliability baked into it somehow. Adaptability is huge because the, the supply chain has to flex along um, the whole way from, let's just say, something like climate change or uh, a natural disaster or, um, you know, something, uh, you know, labor strikes, you know, some sort of strife along that, that, that point of it. So it needs to be able to hop around and find other ways to deliver food. So um, adaptability is key to us getting food on a reliable basis. The trust issue, and, and trust has been embedded in the supply chain for um, centuries, whether or not it was just two traders getting to know each other over a long period of time and there was handshakes and the traders knew each other's families and, and all of that, you know, people began to trade food along networks that are, um, you know, where there was trust you know, like you knew you were going to get a good product at a reasonable price and it was going to be, it was going to be of a certain quality every single time. In other words, you wouldn't open a box and realize half of it was empty or 
Half of it contains substitutions of something else you hadn't ordered. So these trust networks are hugely, hugely important. And um, um, I know at one point talking to uh, a gentleman at a bakery that bakes sesame seeds for simits, which are a classic sort of bagel dish in Turkey, um, I, you know, in the middle of Turkey, in the heartland of Turkey, there are some, uh, there are quite a number of sesame seed uh, producers. But this baker got his uh, sesame seeds from Nigeria, which, you know, you have to ask the questions again, why there and not here? And a lot of these networks don't operate on necessarily close proximity as much as you know the person in Nigeria, they give you a reliable product at a reasonable price, so you go there. So trust is really essential from a, from where the decisions are made to get your items and also who you deal with in the first place. Um, technology is embedded in there because whether or not it was uh, steam engines or blockchain or big data, there is some some component of technology that makes and lubricates the supply chain. Um, it could have been the arrival of container shipping at one point in time that made intermodal shipping possible. Technology is key uh, to, to moving food to us at some point in time. Um, and before our lives became so digital, the optimizer for all of these things was really bigness, um, you know, technologies that enabled assembly lines. Um, and right now we're, you know, we're entering an era of new optimizers, which is, you know, really the internet and big data and, and those sorts of technologies. It seems that those technologies that you talk about in the book, particularly if we took a look at those four areas you just outlined, Obviously, the first three are important, but you could say that they are to some degree. They've been there for a while. There's, you can't really, there's not a lot of change that can go on with those. But technology is another story. Uh, it seems that there's a lot of things going on in food technology within the logistics chain that perhaps are flying under the radar. Or maybe, as you pointed out, when you walk into a room and say food logistics, people start looking at their shoes and wondering when, you know, when is lunch going to yeah. happen. Uh, so for those people probably quite a few who don't think about this or perhaps it's under their radar. What do you think is the most surprising development that they would you want them to learn about from this book? All of the standard narratives about where our food comes from and how it's going to be made are about to change and change in a big way. In other words, carrots won't always be grown in the ground. You know, we may not be looking at, um, you know, the standard questions are how are we going to be feeding X number of people at, at uh, 20 in, you know, the year X, 2050, let's say. And everybody starts, you know, running the numbers on how much land you need in order to grow that much food. And I think those sorts of solutions are not going to be the standard solutions anymore. It's going to be, where can we grow this food? How many, you know, um, floors of a vertical farm we'll be having in the middle of some place in order to produce it? Um, you know, I think a lot of the... Um, standard answers are going to be um, challenged to the standard narratives. The choices will be different. Uh, your food will come from places they've never it's never come from before. Um, your food is going to be made in ways you never imagined. Meaning, I mean, look at the whole 
sort of new trend to make plant-based meat or a cellular biology used to make meat. That's, you know, that's a whole new thing that wasn't in your old, you know, playbook for how the world would look when, you know, food, what the new food system might look like. So I, I want people to think across broad disciplines in terms of what they might be looking at for their food system. And technology is the big game changer here. Um, it's it's the one that sort of says, no, it's not going to be business as usual. You're not looking at how are we going to get more people interested in agriculture as we've known it. It's going to be, you know, as an engineer, you now are part of, you're the new farmer. So very, very different landscape now. And, um, and I think people need to, I would encourage people anyway, to be engaged on what their new food system could look like. Because um, all those people, the engineers, the grocery stores, the big food companies, the little food companies are looking to us to tell them how much we can tolerate in terms of our food being engineered, how much technology we're willing to have in our food system now, uh, how much we want our food to influence our public health, our you know, personal health. So, so I think we can't become passive in this change. I think we need to be our own, ad, you know, advocates and figure out how much we want technology to play a role in our future food system. I'd like to talk about um, one technological development out of the book, which I found really surprising. I certainly hadn't thought about it, and that's blockchain. Because normally when people think of blockchain, which has gotten a lot of press recently, they tend to think of it in terms of cryptocurrencies or financial engineering. But usually the blockchain has a space in food logistics in the future. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot of interest in um, in blockchain by the food industry. And the reason for it is, is that there's an actual problem <laughs> that blockchain could solve. Um, the, the food supply chain, as you, as you can tell from reading the book, is very complicated. Food passes through um, a number of middlemen. And at each point, there's what they call a, you know, a change of custody. Uh, you know, the ownership of the food item passes through along with its value. And there's also a lot of room for error, a lot of room for contamination. Um, and so being able to have um, a very tight chain of custody that can be verified along the way is critical, not only for the consumer because they're curious about where their food comes from, but for the food industry that is now more than ever galvanized to try to eliminate food recalls and contamination. Um, you know, the, the price tag for those missteps is quite high now. So, um, and everybody knows about them, whereas before it wasn't as transparent. So the market wants greater transparency. The industry really needs more transparency. And blockchain potentially could be that digital ledger, the, you know, a way to really manage the chain of custody through the food supply chain. So there's a lot of promise there. Uh, but it's not a, you know, it's not a, um, a done deal, as we would say. 
the, the food industry itself has, um, you know, operates on the idea of I can get my strawberry to your plate in better shape at lower cost faster. And remember that, you know, food is perishable. So fast is really critical here. So if I've developed something internally that does all of that, that's my competitive advantage. In fact, it might even be my IP. So sharing that on this sort of open, you know, system, uh, open data uh, template that everyone is talking about, and let's all share our data and come together so we can transfer information throughout the supply chain, that becomes a little bit problematic for some of the players. Uh, it might be that they'll say that the win is bigger in this case, and so you know they'll they'll find a way to to share data. But it, as I said, it's not a slam dunk that will have to be overcome. Not to mention that a lot of people in the in the food supply chain are still collecting their information on you know sheets of paper, bits of paper on a on a clipboard, and so sharing data on this supply chain. Um, blockchain will require standard, you know, agreeing on standards of data capture, data sharing, and um, that's a big leap from concerns about IP and also um, clipboards. You know, it kind of sounds a little bit like where the health industry was, say, 10 years ago, you know, saying, well, there's this huge revolution that's going to happen. But in fact, on a day-to-day basis, doctors and hospitals weren't really working to a large degree on digital processes. And that, 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 that was a big move that had to happen before the savings could come out through technological innovation. So at least that, when I heard you say that, that's like the first thing that came to my mind. Right, right. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, there are some big players. You know, IBM is big, uh, moved to quite big into the big data, into the blockchain. Companies like Kroger and Walmart are jumping in, in some cases requiring all of their suppliers to standardize and begin sharing data for some testing of this blockchain idea. So, you know, you could have the big players, uh, you know, push conformance to sharing uh, data on this blockchain from the top down. And that that could be an interesting move. Those are big companies. Can you think of a small company out there that's doing something that you think is really interesting? Maybe not necessarily in blockchain, but somewhere within the food logistics world that you work. Well, there's a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, we at um, Food and City, where I'm um, based here at the University of Texas, we run a, a an annual food startup competition. And we do it for this sort of in-between area, not the consumer packaged goods like cricket bars or something, but the actual, you know, mechanics of moving food. So we're seeing some really interesting things that are going on in terms of personal growing systems, for example. This whole question that's out there, well, you know, how much does a consumer want to have um, a growing system as an option at their home? Uh, so I've got one of these actually in our house here, which has got LED lights and I'm growing my second batch of basil in it. You know, is this, it's interesting. The question is, is it sticky? You know, is it, is it something that's people will really do? I think some of the upcycling of waste materials backwards, or you want to say through the supply chain are really interesting where like we had, um, a competitor that was, um, 
growing, uh, taking spent grains from breweries and then creating flour that they would sell to a bakery to bake bread. You know, I mean, so creating these sort of cyclical economies by moving waste, uh, you know, back up through the supply chain. I think those are really fascinating. That's not necessarily sexy technology, but it's interesting thinking. Um, another one that we had, which, uh, you know, we see really early stage ideas that are very, are fascinating. They may not be a solution at the, at the, um, that's been fully thought out, but we had a, um, a company, a startup last year, uh, compete in our challenge that was called AgroRacks. And this was a group actually from MIT that was going to be using from the heat from server farms funny play on words, to um, grow, uh, you know, racks of, of, of plants. So, you know, using the heat and the warmth and the energy from a server farm to, to actually uh, provide the energy for growing in an enclosed um, space. So, you know, I, like, I love the ingenuity of, of you know, solutions like that. So... So who apart, knows? Apart, Lots of things happening. Apart from this book, are there places, ways that people can follow you on social media, both you and the work that you're being doing at, at the University of Texas? Sure. You, I have a, a Twitter handle, which is at Food Miracle. And you can follow us on through our website called www.foodandcity.org. And you can subscribe to our newsletter there. Perfect. Robin Metcalf, the author of Food Roots, Growing Bananas in Iceland, and Other Tales from the Logistics of Eating. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having, uh, having me. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2019 the MIT Press, all rights reserved.